Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The use of oral antimicrobials for complicated infections like infective endocarditis has gained significant interest in recent years. The 2015 IDSA endocarditis guideline mentions that oral treatment may be considered in a few specific situations, but the practice remains a topic of great debate. Today's podcast speaker, Dr. Kyle Wamsley, PharmD, reviews recent literature regarding oral antibiotics and endocarditis with the goal of shedding light on if, when, and in what patient population oral therapy should be considered. Outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy is utilized to treat a variety of different infectious indications, often for long durations of time and carry with it inherent risks and potential complications. Some of these risks and complications can include cost, accessibility, patient tolerability, secondary line infections, issues with antimicrobial stewardship, and hesitancy to want to grant central IV line access to certain patient populations. Over the years, research has tried to demonstrate that oral antimicrobial therapy may be just as effective as intravenous therapy in given indications. One such indication for this particular type of research has been infective endocarditis, and it'll be what we discuss here today. Hopefully by the end of this discussion, you'll have a better baseline understanding of some of the literature surrounding the use of oral antimicrobial agents in infective endocarditis. You'll be able to identify some key characteristics uh, to help identify an ideal patient. And we'll be outlining some of the different antimicrobial regimens that may be utilized as oral therapy if necessary for certain patients. Infective endocarditis is a potentially lethal disease affecting roughly 200,000 patients annually. It has a variable mortality rate between 10 and 40% overall, which varies based on the causative organism. Essentially, it's a bloodstream infection that settles in the heart lining, valve, or vessel. And the treatment regimens are tailored based on three specific key characteristics. The type of valve the patient has, whether that be native or prosthetic, the organism of infectious etiology, and the susceptibility of that organism to different antimicrobial therapy regimens. When I think of infective endocarditis, I like to break it into two main parts, um, and that would be either right-sided or left-sided infective endocarditis. Now, the right-sided shown here in blue has a primary risk factor of persons who inject drugs, previously known as IV drug users. Overall, the right-sided infective endocarditis is less common of the two different types. However, in the PWID, or person who inject drug patient population, this accounts for roughly 80 to 90% of the overall infections. The main valve in question when concerning right-sided infective endocarditis is going to be the tricuspid valve shown in the blue portion of the heart illustration there. Conversely to that will be left-sided infective endocarditis, and the primary risk factor for left-sided is gonna be valvular disease. This is the more frequent, frequently occurring of the two types of infective endocarditis and will affect either the aortic or the mitral valves. There are a plethora of different causative organisms for infective endocarditis. We're going to focus on the main four in the box there. Um, roughly 50% or half of infective endocarditis species are derivative of Staphylococcus aureus, followed closely by coagulus negative Staphylococcus or CONS. 
then Viridans group Streptococcus, or VGS, and Enterococcus species depicted there in purple. Now, of these four organisms, they account for over three-quarters of the amount of infective endocarditis um, overall. Diagnosis of infective endocarditis can be murky at times, so we rely on the Duke criteria as kind of our diagnostic process um, for identifying definitive infective endocarditis. There are three components to the Duke criteria, um, pathological, major, and minor, and possessing either of the pathological criteria, generally histological evidence, um, will grant somebody the, the indication of definitive infective endocarditis. Also, if a patient has both of the major criteria, which would be a positive blood culture with one of the typical organisms we just spoke about, or a positive echocardiogram that is demonstrating a positive vegetation on one of the valves, they would also be uh, having the indication of definitive infective endocarditis as well. If they meet all five of the minor criteria, they would also have definitive infective endocarditis, and that would be a combination of a predisposing heart condition or a PWID patient, a fever, either of the vascular or immunologic phenomena listed there, and microbiologic evidence of an overall infection. They can also, uh, using a combination of one major and three minor criteria, have definitive infective endocarditis as well. If they only possess one of the major and one of the minor, or three of the minor criteria, they are only thrown into what is known as potential infective endocarditis. Our treatment regimens for infective endocarditis have largely been based upon expert opinion over the years, and they generally utilize an intravenous antimicrobial agent that has bactericidal activity. Um, after we determine the IV antimicrobial of choice, we'll determine the dose and frequency based off of patient-specific characteristics, and then hopefully a few days or several days down the line, we'll be able to have cultures with susceptibilities that will allow us to de-escalate our therapy to the narrowest option possible. Our duration of therapy will range um, depending on the causative organism and the type of valve itself with longer durations for uh, some of the rare organisms and also for non-native valves. In order to get to what type of recommendations we could have for utilizing oral antimicrobial therapy in the year 2020, we have to jump into a time machine and kind of go back to see where this all began and determining on uh, the feasibility of utilizing oral antimicrobial agents. And so this isn't a novel uh, topic subject at all. They've actually been trying to utilize oral antimicrobial agents for quite some time. And we're going to go back to 1980 um, for some of the first two studies that we'll discuss here today. So. These two earlier studies, uh, designated with the number one there on the top line, is going to be by Parker et al., and the second study, designated with the number two, will be by Dworkin et al. The Parker et al. study focused mainly on PWID patients, and it was a retrospective observational study of 35 patients total. Their inclusion criteria was right-sided infective endocarditis with Staphylococcus aureus species, and their intervention was IV nafcillin for the first 14 days, and then transitioned to oral dicloxacillin with or without rifampin for a 26-day duration. With the Dworkin et al. study, they also focused on PWID patients, but they were a prospective observational study. They had a smaller patient population of 14 patients overall completing uh, the trial, and their inclusion criteria mirrored that of the Parker et al. trial with right-sided infective endocarditis of Staph aureus. Their intervention was slightly different, though, and they utilized intravenous therapy for the first seven days and then transitioned over to suprafloxacin with rifampicin. And I should note there that with the IV therapy, they did most of the time uh, start oral rifampicin in addition to the intravenous therapy and then continued the course of suprafloxacin in combination with rifampicin for 28 days. The Parker et al. trial, since it was a retrospective observational trial, did not have any key exclusion criteria that they discussed. 
They did closely follow up with their patients throughout the course of their oral antibiotic regimen, including meeting up to three to seven times a week. Um, and their overall metric for determining their outcome was negative blood cultures at the end of therapy. They did find that 100% of the patients within their study did achieve a negative blood culture by the end of treatment duration. I'll counter that with the Dworkin trial, which actually was able to utilize some of their exclusion criteria. And they excluded any patients who had an MIC greater than one microgram per milliliter for either of the study drugs involved. And they also excluded any patient with a prosthetic valve. They utilized similar metrics. However, they did subsequent um, negative blood cultures uh, on subsequent days at the end of therapy. And they also found that they achieved 100% cure rate with the oral therapy arm. So now we have a little evidence of this is potentially feasible in right-sided infective endocarditis with oral antimicrobial therapy, specifically in PWID patients with Staph aureus. But it'd be really nice if we had a study that would demonstrate oral antimicrobial therapy versus the standard of care at that time, which will bring us to the Heldman trial. So this was a prospective, randomized, non-blinded trial with 44 patients completing therapy. Now, of note, there were roughly 440 patients that were screened for this trial, and so they had about a 10% of the overall screened patient population completing the trial itself. Their population uh, mirrored that of the previous two trials and focused on right-sided Staphylococcus aureus infective endocarditis in PWID patients, except in this trial they were randomized upon admission to either the oral or the intravenous therapy arms. On the left side of this table here will be the oral therapy regimen arm, and on the right side will be the intravenous therapy arm. The oral regimen of choice was ciprofloxacin 750 milligrams twice daily, in addition to rifampin 300 milligrams twice daily. And this was continued for 28 days after transitioning acceptance into the trial. In the intravenous therapy arm, they utilized oxacillin two grams every four hours, or vancomycin one gram every 12 hours, with the addition of gentamicin, two milligrams per kilogram for the first five days. This arm also did 28 days duration after initiation to the trial. The overall results between the two uh, were found that 18 out of the 19 patients in the oral arm achieved negative blood cultures at the end of therapy, and only 22 of the 25 patients in the intravenous therapy arm achieved negative blood cultures at the end of therapy. They did also note that there was a difference in the safety um, outcomes between the two different arms as well, with hepatotoxicity only occurring in one patient in the oral arm, but hepatotoxicity occurring in 13 patients in the intravenous arm, and 10 patients experiencing nephrotoxicity in the intravenous arm as well. One last thing I'd like to point out about this trial is that they also did not include any patients with prosthetic valves or any patient with an implanted cardiac device. Some of our main takeaways from this trial was that there was not a transition, as the previous two trials had done, from IV therapy to oral therapy. They focused on that same patient population, or PWID patients, with Staph aureus on the right-sided infective endocarditis. It was a very small selective trial. As I mentioned, only roughly 10% of the patients um, that were screened for this trial completed therapy. And it was really hard to determine on whether or not we can definitively say that oral antimicrobial therapy is indeed not inferior to the um, intravenous therapy uh, standard at that time. So now over the course of these 20 years, we have a little bit of data demonstrating that our right-sided infective endocarditis with Staph aureus in PWID patients, oral may potentially have that an option to work for us. That'll bring us to our first assessment question today. Uh, you can go ahead and respond using the um, Poll Everywhere app, or you can also respond in web browser to pollev.com slash mayorx or text MayoRx to 22333 once to join, and then text your response of either A, B, C, or D. 
And so the question is, prior to the year 2000, which of the following unique patient characteristics were present within these studies? Was it A, left-sided infective endocarditis and PWID patients? B, left-sided infective endocarditis and non-PWID patients? C, right-sided infective endocarditis and PWID patients? Or D, right-sided infective endocarditis and non-PWID patients? I'll give you a few moments to respond. All right, and it looks like we're starting to slow down on our results here. If you haven't had the opportunity yet, please feel free to continue to respond. Um, but I would agree with the majority of the answers here and that option C was correct. Uh, all three of these studies did focus on right-sided infective endocarditis in a PWID patient population. Answers A and B were both incorrect because they did not focus on left-sided infective endocarditis, and option D was not correct because they focused specifically on PWID patients. So up until 20, the year 2000, we had these three uh, different studies that were demonstrating that oral antimicrobial therapy could be a feasible option. And, but it wasn't until 2015 when the IDSA guidelines made a staphylococcus update that made a recommendation for a consideration, um, specifically uh, in a very well-defined patient population for oral antimicrobial therapy. And so their considerations were in patients that were PWID. They had uncomplicated right-sided infective endocarditis, and they only allowed our, this recommendation to be considered for patients that had methicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus infections. And they also made mention that this would be potentially feasible for anybody leaving against medical advice. So now we have a continued theme of right-sided infective endocarditis with Staphylococcus aureus and PWID patients. And we can start to potentially consider oral as a last-line resort for these patients. But what was happening with some of the newer trials, um, and the first one we'll discuss here is going to be by Tissot de Poin. And this was a prospective single center before and after interventional trial. They studied 341 patients at a single center, and they had two different time periods from the year 2001 to 2011, and then the second arm in the 2012 to 2016 time period. All patients were referred specifically to this trial, um, but the patient populations did vary significantly um, in two main categories. The control arm, which would be the first arm, or the intravenous therapy arm, had patients that were having and experiencing more surgical procedures within them, and they also had a higher prevalence of vegetations on their valves as well. I would also like to point out that there was a very small PWID patient population present at less than 15%. One of the interesting things around the study and some of the newer studies is that they were no longer focusing on right-sided infective endocarditis. As you can see here, their main inclusion criteria was left-sided infective endocarditis with Staph aureus species. They had roughly 12 to 13% MRSA between the two different arms, and they included both native and prosthetic valves as well, with roughly one-third of the patients having a prosthetic valve. They didn't have a composite endpoint that they were focusing on. Rather, they focused specifically on hospital, 30, and 90-day mortality, and the cause of death within that 30 to 90-day period as well. So the two different intervention time periods uh, on the left-hand side here from the year 2001 to 2011, 70% of the patients in that population were receiving oxacillin intravenously for six weeks, and 30% of the patient population was receiving vancomycin, 30 milligrams per kilogram per day, with agentamycin, 3 milligram per kilogram dose for the first five days as well. And what they inevitably ended up doing was from 2012 to 2016, they tried to implement an intravenous therapy option with high-dose um, intravenous sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim in combination with high-dose clindamycin. So the sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim dose would be equivalent of roughly two double-strength tablets three times a day, and the clindamycin dose was 1,800 milligrams per day in three divided doses as well. 
However, only 40% of the patients during this time period were included within that particular intravenous dosing regimen, and 60% of the patients that started off on intravenous therapy during that time period inevitably received the standard of care, which was a combination of either oxytocin and vancomycin with gentamicin for the first five days. After seven days of this intravenous therapy, they were then transitioned to oral monotherapy with sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim. I should mention that 60% of the pa certain patients within the population, especially those having a cardiac abscess or persistent bacteremia, had the addition of gentamicin onto the intravenous therapy initially, and were also continued on rifampicin um, for the duration of their oral therapy as well. Um, and this was roughly 28% of the patient population studied. So there were several significant therapy interruptions or alterations within the antimicrobial regimens that they were utilizing. The first one came about in renal failure, which occurred more commonly in the oral transition group. Um, and so roughly 5% of the patients within the oral group had to be transitioned to a different antimicrobial therapy based off of renal failure. And secondly, in septic failure, um, there was a transition higher prevalence within the oral transition group as well. Now, the overall occurrence of sepsis did not vary between the two different, two different arms of therapy, but none of the intravenous therapies were transitioned to two different antimicrobial agents, but roughly 6% of the oral transition group were transitioned to an alternative antimicrobial agent. So the overall results from this study uh, was that oral had improved mortality and also a decreased average length of stay in the hospital itself. The p-values for each of the associated um, regimens there are on the top of each of the bar graphs, but their overall takeaway message was that it had improved mortality and possibly significantly decreased length of stay in the hospital overall. I like to take that with a grain of salt, though, for several of the reasons why we've already discussed. So our key takeaway from this study um, or some of the key takeaways, I should say, are that we had unequal patient populations. When we're trying to assess a mortality benefit between two different arms of a study, and one of the patient populations has an increased amount of surgical interventions, we already know that that's probably going to play a potential co-founder in assessing mortality differences between the two different arms. Also, the amount of vegetations, we know that there's more likely to have decreased uh, our extended durations of treatment and increased occurrence of treatment failures as well. Now, they were also to, during two different varying time frames, the first time frame um, for roughly 10 years, the second time frame for four years. But overall, the secondary treatment modalities that were present, especially regarding sepsis between 2001 and 2011 and then 2012 to 2016 varied greatly. And so that may have also played a significant difference in the mortality between the two different arms. The main thing that I take away from this study is that the drug protocol deviation was pretty significant in the oral arm. Um, roughly 50% of the patients ended up transitioning to a different oral antimicrobial agent or transitioning back to an intravenous um, antimicrobial agent as well. So it makes it really hard to kind of apply these results to um, our standard patient population. And I think the main takeaway from this is that in certain specific patient populations or subset populations, we could try to utilize sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim as an agent of choice. One of the things that I would have really liked about this trial is if it would have had a more structured trial design, maybe something that would have been published prior to the trial itself and then was able to be dissected apart um, publicly before the trial was originally initiated, something that we might see in the POET trial. So the POET trial was a randomized multi-center, open-label non-inferiority trial of 400 patients, also with left-sided infective endocarditis, with a mixed native and prosthetic valve population. Roughly 107 of the patients had a prosthetic valve that were included in this trial. They had a very small um, 
patient population of PWID patients, uh, roughly five of the patients overall within the trial were PWID, and they had a mixed amount of organisms that were present within the trial. But none of the organisms that were present actually turned out to be MRSA. But it was not specifically excluded in their inclusion and exclusion criteria. So they had very rigorous inclusion criteria overall, and you had to demonstrate an improving clinical picture within the first seven to 10 days of intravenous antimicrobial therapy to even be considered to be put into this trial. You also have had to demonstrate a normal gastrointestinal uptake of oral regimens of any antibiotic, and you were excluded if you had a predetermined low compliance to um, any oral therapies. It should be noted that this particular study did not disclose what their predetermination criteria were for predetermining load compliance, um, but it was something to just kind of consider for their exclusion criteria. Their endpoints was a composite of all-cause mortality, unplanned cardiac surgery, clinically evident embolism or relapse of bacteremia within six months after completion of the oral antimicrobial therapy regimen. So of the mixed organisms present, um, this pie graph should look slightly different than the one that we saw earlier today. Uh, and that a vast majority, roughly 50% of their patient population, had streptococcus as the primary species of etiology. Um, roughly one quarter of the patient population had Enterococcus fecalis, another quarter had methicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus, and only 6% of the patients had a coagulase-negative Staphylococcus species. Their pre-published antimicrobial regimens listed here um, were comprised specifically for uh, the organism of choice. So our dicloxacillin and rifampicin was specifically for our methicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus species. The combination of amoxicillin and rifampicin was supposed to be utilized for our coagulase-negative Staphylococcus, our Enterococcus fecalis, and our Streptococcus species with penicillin MICs less than one milligram per liter. The linazolid and rifampicin were also included for the coagulase-negative Staphylococcus, Enterococcus fecalis, our methicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus, and our streptococcus species with a penicillin MIC less than one milligram per liter. And lastly, the combination of moxifloxacin with either rifampicin or clindamycin were supposed to be utilized for our streptococcus species with penicillin MICs greater than one milligram per liter. Now, this was great that this was what their overall trial design was, um, but their overall utilization did break away from these four predetermined um, antimicrobial regimens. The most common regimen of choice was amoxicillin and rifampicin, but the second most common antimicrobial combination therapy was actually amoxicillin with moxifloxacin. One other thing to note about these regimens is that because this was outside of the United States, any of the of regimens that had the asterisks to the right of them would have potential for utilization of fusidic acid, which is an antimicrobial agent similar to rifampicin, but usually only present within the um, European countries. So looking at the results of the POET trial, they did find that our composite endpoint did meet the non-inferiority predetermined criteria. And if we look through this table, every one of the individual components of their composite endpoint also met non-inferiority for oral antimicrobial therapy versus intravenous therapy regimens. Our key takeaways from this trial, our key takeaways that I managed to, to take away from this or glean from it, was that it had a pre-published trial design, um, and so people were able to modify or make recommendations prior to initiation of the overall trial itself. Um, the patients that were included only had an improving clinical picture on intravenous therapy prior to transition over to an oral therapy regimen. Only 25% of our patients had Staphylococcus aureus species, but none of them had MRSA infections. And we went over already how there were multiple different combination regimens that were utilized, and none of, not specifically the ones that were predetermined in their uh, dosing criteria. 
So that'll lead us to our second assessment question. What key patient characteristics differed between studies before and after the year 2000? Was it A, the side, either right or left, of infective enocarditis? Was it B, illicit IV drug use or a PWID patient population? C, the antibiotic regimens utilized? Or was it D, all of the above? Looks like we might still have a couple answers trickling in, but I would definitely agree with the majority of the votes here, and that would be D, all of the above. Um, right and left side both vary between the studies before and after the year 2000, um, as well as the patient population with illicit IV drug use and the antibiotic regimens utilized. So going back to our overall assessment through the years um, and looking back at all of our research, um, all of our earlier studies focused on that right-sided infective endocarditis with Staphylococcus aureus in our PWID patient population. And the newer trials focused a little bit um, conversely to that on left-sided infective endocarditis with mixed species, um, all saying that oral therapy might actually benefit or work just as well as intravenous therapy, at least being non-inferiori. Overall, I'd like to review all of the studies that we went over here today to try to, to hone in on some of the key characteristics that we can utilize for trying to identify our, our patients and antimicrobial regimens. So our first three trials shown there in blue uh, focused, like I said, on the right-sided infective endocarditis in PWID patients, primarily with Staphylococcus aureus species, and their interventions were dicloxacillin orally or ciprofloxacin and rifampicin. Their main overall look and outcome was going to be for a cure rate of the infection itself, and most of them did find that there were high cure rates within their very specified patient population. The two newer trials shown on the bottom in that orangish-red color um, focus mainly on left-sided infective endocarditis. Very low to no patients were in the PWID patient population, and their interventions varied drastically between the two different studies. Their primary outcome and outlook for what they were trying to assess on whether or not there was a mortality benefit, or at least a non-inferiority um, regarding mortality between intravenous and oral antimicrobial therapies, and the results from the Tissot trial did demonstrate rather loosely that the oral arm may have had a lower mortality and decreased hospital stay, and the POET trial demonstrating that oral may be not inferior to intravenous therapy in specific patient populations. And that'll bring us to our final assessment here. This is going to be a free text response, and I would just like everybody to name a patient characteristic they feel is important to consider prior to contemplating oral antibiotics for continued treatment of infective endocarditis in a patient population. So I'll go ahead and get started with some of the answers that we've received thus far. So it, I, I definitely would agree uh, that PWID or IV drug use would be something that I would want to consider in a patient population prior to transitioning over potentially to an oral antimicrobial regimen. Compliance I see quite a bit of here, and I would totally agree compliance is going to be one of the main issues because no antibiotic is going to work if a patient's not going to be taking it, whether that be intravenous or oral. The GI anatomy and absorption is also going to play a big benefit um, or something that I would definitely want to consider as well because if we're going to be giving them an oral antimicrobial agent but they have absorption issues, something like a Ruin Y, uh, similar to what Danielle talked about last week, um, we definitely wouldn't think that there would be um, a, an expected benefit of oral therapy in those patients. Organism resistance profile is very, very important, yes. We want to make sure that uh, the organism of choice or of infectious etiology is going to be extremely susceptible to the antimicrobial regimen that we'd like to go with. Allergies is always my go-to answer. Um, so you don't want to give them anything that they might be potentially having an allergic reaction to. Um, Side effect profile is another big one as well. We did talk um, specifically about linazolid in combination with certain therapies as well. One of the things that kind of triggers in my mind is if we're going to be doing four weeks of linazolid therapy, the amount of myelosuppression by the end of week two is probably going to be fairly significant, and is that going to be tolerable for our patients as well?
finances will definitely play a big role, whether or not patients can afford any of the copays or co-insurance payments um, with either IV or oral medications. Linazolid can still be somewhat pricey, and all of our intravenous therapies can also be a little bit pricier as they generally cost a little bit more to, to make. Negative blood culture would also be a, a, an important one, and that, that'll kind of go side and side with the clinical improvement. So we want to make sure that these patients, if we're going to consider oral therapy, uh, are going to be able to have a clinical improvement prior to oral therapy to give them and their bodies the chance to kind of clear the infection um, in addition to the antimicrobial regimen as well. And it looks like that covers pretty much all of the answers. Thank you, everybody, um, for what we would like to consider. So in summary, looking at the older data versus the newer data, um, our older data with our PWID patient population, our newer data not really focusing as much on that particular patient population. Our older data focused primarily on native valves only, and our newer data did include, include mixed valve populations, but only 25 to 30% of the patients within those studies had a non-native valve. Older data was mainly observational with small patient populations, whereas the newer, da newer data were more randomized trials with larger patient populations. We had a mixture of the different antimicrobial regimens utilized, and the older data kind of focused primarily on the feasibility, whereas the newer data focused to try to assess non-inferiority versus intravenous therapy. So in conclusion, I don't personally believe that we should be trying to utilize oral antimicrobial regimens in every one of our patients. I think this is still something that's uh, going to be tucked away in our back pocket for consideration when our back's against a wall, and we need to come up with something for a very specific patient population. If I were to try to tease out what our ideal patient population may look like for consideration of oral antimicrobial therapy, I would probably consider a PWID patient population uh, that are trying to leave AMA. I would primarily focus on native valves just because we haven't had as much data to show our non-native valve population uh, benefits specifically. And I'd want to make sure that they've already demonstrated rapid clinical improvement on the intravenous therapy prior to transfer over to an oral regimen. Our ideal organism would be cultured and susceptible, not just susceptible, highly susceptible, with a very low MIC to the antimicrobial regimens that we'd like to go with that are going to be um, tied to our third period here, which will be combination therapies of highly oral bioavailable drugs, um, something like ciprofloxacin or fluoroquinolones, linazolid, rifampin, sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, or doxycycline. And we want to make sure that these drug regimens are going to be safe for long-term use as well. So if I were to continue that timeline that we've been going through here today, what would happen after the year 2020, I'd want to assess uh, a couple of different things, and maybe we wouldn't be able to do this all in one individual study, but I'd want to assess on whether or not there's a difference in treating right versus left-sided infective enoproditis. I'd want to try to focus primarily on our methicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus, as that accounts for most of our infective um, infective endocarditis species, and I'd like to do a mixed valve population to see if there is going to be a statistical difference in treating with oral antimicrobial regimens between native and non-native valves. I'd want to make sure prior to initiation of the oral therapy regimen that they were tolerating and having a clinical improvement on intravenous therapy for at least 7 to 10 days. And then I'd like to go with um, one of the combination regimens listed here, something like a ciprofloxacin or amoxicillin with rifampin, sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, or a doxycycline. And I'd obviously be comparing this to the intravenous standards of therapy, something like anaphacillin or cefazolin. And I would try to be assessing um, for the outcome clinical and microbiologic cure rate, recurrence of infection with the same organism uh, within six months after completion of therapy, and I'd like to review the overall mortality to see if there would be a difference between the two arms.
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.